Shalom, and thank you for listening at BethEmmanuel.org. We rely on the generosity of our listeners to sustain this ministry and the message of the coming kingdom of heaven. Please consider making a donation to Beth Emanuel by clicking on the Donate tab at BethEmmanuel.org. I don't think of myself as a right-wing conservative, and I don't think of myself as a liberal leftist, and I don't do politics. Instead, my politics are the politics of the kingdom of heaven, the messianic era, and so in my teachings, I try to avoid politics and try to keep a balanced perspective. But just for fun, since it's almost Thanksgiving and you need something to argue about at the Thanksgiving table, let's talk about politics a little bit as it relates to the current situation with the war in Gaza. Parshat Toldot in the fifth Aliyah, which we read on Thursday of the week of Parshat Toldot, the fifth day of the week, we read the words, when Esau was 40 years old, he took a woman named Yehudit, Judith, the daughter of Be'eri, the Hittite. Genesis 26.34 The name of Esau's first wife is Yehudit, which means, strangely enough, Jewess. It's the female form of the name Judah. Obviously, there's some intentional irony at work in the story. He marries a woman named Jewess, but she's not Jewish. She's a Canaanite. Like I said, this is in the fifth Aliyah of the Parsha. So if you follow the daily reading schedule, which you can find online at bethemanuel.org daily, you read this Aliyah on Thursday, the fifth day of the week, the same day on which the IDF recovered the body of one of the hostages, a 65-year-old Jewish woman whose body was found near the Shifa hospital complex. The woman's name is Yehudit Weiss. She was a resident of Kibbutz Be'eri. So put those names together, Yehudit of Be'eri, and you will see that her name appears in in the Parsha, on the very day her body was found, as it says, he took a woman, Yehudit, the daughter of Be'eri. That's a synchronicity that defies coincidence and serves to remind us that if you want to understand what's happening in the world, you need to understand the Torah. As it says in Perkyavot, Ben Bagbag says, turn it and turn it again, for everything is in it. The story about Esau taking Yehudit Bat Be'eri comes at the end of Genesis 26. That is a story about conflict with the Pelishtim, that is the Philistines, or if you like, Palestinians. A famine came over the land, not the same as the first famine which had taken place when Avraham was alive. Yitzchak went to Gerar to Avimelech, king of the Pelishtim. Hashem appeared to him and said, Don't go down into Egypt, but live where I tell you. Stay in this land, and I will be with you and bless you, because I will give all these lands to you and to your descendants. I will fulfill the oath which I swore to Avraham, your father. I will make your descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky. I will give all these lands to your descendants, and by your descendants, all the nations of the earth will bless themselves." That's how the chapter began. Where is Gerar? It's in the Philistine territory, just outside of Gaza, actually. Earlier in the Torah, Avraham and 
Avimelech made a covenant, so Yitzhak assumes he's safe to live in Gerar. He gives up his nomadic life, the life of his father Avraham, and settles down in the plains, plants crops, becomes a farmer, builds a moshav, a settlement. But the Philistine king covets his wife's beauty, and the Philistines grow jealous of his agricultural and financial success in their midst. It says, the man became rich and prospered more and more until he had become very wealthy indeed. He had flocks, cattle, and a large household, and the Pelishtim envied him. Genesis 26.13-14 The Philistines envied him because they wanted Yitzchak's material success, and they grew jealous of his wealth. Avimelech said to Yitzchak, You must go away from us because... You have become much more powerful than we are. Genesis 26, 16. Avimelech and the Philistines feel like victims because Isaac is more successful than they are on the land. And they resent him because he has become much more powerful than they are. When I read this, I could not help but think of Gaza and the tensions between the Palestinians and the Israelis and the current war. When Israel occupied Gaza, they transformed its refugee camps into a thriving Middle East success story. They employed thousands of Gazans. They produced agriculture and industry. They filled the Gaza Strip with greenhouses. Gazans were exporting flowers all over the world. But then, in 2005, under international pressure, Israel withdrew from Gaza, dismantled its own communities and settlements, forcibly evicted Jews from their homes, and pulled the IDF out, leaving Gazans to govern themselves. What did the Gazans do? Did they build on the success they inherited from Israel? No. They smashed the greenhouses, tore down infrastructure, and elected the terrorist organization Hamas to govern them. As soon as Hamas took office, they slaughtered the members of the Palestinian Authority that had been in charge, throwing them off skyscrapers, assassinating them, and so forth. So Avimelech breaks the treaty and drives Yitzhak and Rivka out of his territory and into the semi-arid Negev. Yitzhak is forced to resume his life as a nomadic herdsman, but he finds that also to be impossible because the Philistines have stopped up the wells that his father Avraham dug in the Negev. They're trying to push Isaac out of the Negev by cutting off his water supply. Yitzchak opens the wells, but each time he opens one of the old wells that was originally dug by his father Avraham, the Philistines arrive and claim that the well doesn't belong to him, it, it belongs to them and that they dug the well. Yitzchak names the wells Quarrel. And he names the second well, Hatred, because that's all he experiences on the edge of Philistine territory. Quarrel and hatred at the, at the hands of the Philistines, despite his best efforts to live at peace with his neighbors. He's finally driven back as far as Beersheba, his original home where Avraham once lived. And to this day, these dramas are playing out in the land of Israel, but also worldwide. The world has been slaking its thirst from these wells, the wells of quarrel and hatred. I'm following the story closely. I'm actually glued to it. 
I've been preparing for this my whole life. That's what it feels like. But at the same time, I didn't see it coming. Not like this. I mean, we all know that the Bible prophecies are going to come true one way or another, right? But the rapid speed of this explosion of anti-Semitism, worldwide demonstrations, open hatred and disdain for Israel, it has been dizzying. How long until the mark of the beast and the beheading start? You can't help but wonder. The proportions on this sea change are truly epic. Yes, there was a counter-protest in Washington, D.C. last Tuesday, and nearly 300,000 American Jews gathered to make their voice heard in support of Israel. That alone is an incredible thing. But those numbers are dwarfed by the numbers against us. The overwhelming majority of world opinion has turned against Israel, and the demonstrations against Zionism and the Jewish people grow louder, larger, and more strident with each passing week. Last week, pro-Palestinian protesters violently rushed the DNC headquarters in Washington, D.C., denouncing the president for supporting Israel. They refer to him as Genocide Joe. The Capitol went on lockdown. Capitol Police, who have learned their lesson since January 2021, were deployed in riot gear and made arrests. It was a violent collision. You probably didn't see it on the news. All over the world, more and more people speak out on behalf of Hamas, siding with the terrorists, justifying the massacre, while moral cowardice silences the voices of those who should be speaking up on behalf of the only real democracy and free country in the entire Middle East, the only country where human rights are actually valued in the Middle East, the only military in the Middle East that attempts to limit civilian casualties and has any regard at all for the value of human life. People should be speaking up on behalf of Israel, and they should be condemning Hamas as terrorists. But they are terrified. Academics are terrified. Journalists are terrified. Politicians are terrified. Heads of state are terrified. Terrified of what? Terrified of the power of cancel culture. So we have this super weird situation where Muslims are marching in the streets side by side with progressive leftists calling for global jihad, which means a holy war against Jews and against America and against all non-Muslims. What's weird about it is that on the surface, these two groups, progressive leftists on the one hand and Muslims on the other, seem to have nothing in common with one another. The progressive left is stridently atheist, anti-religious, pro-choice, pro-gay, pro-gender fluidity, and allegedly concerned with multiculturalism, tolerance, diversity, and pronouns. Islam stands categorically against all of those platforms. So they make what could be called strange bedfellows. Actually, the progressive left has been making strange bedfellows for a long time. But along with Islam, they make strange bedfellows because of the old adage, the enemy of my enemy is my friend. 
If you want to understand how these two seemingly opposite forces have come to be allied so closely together, if you want to understand the common ground shared by Muslim fundamentalists and the social justice warriors of the progressive left, you have to understand the wells from which they have been drinking. You have to know something about the wells of Sitna and Essek, that is hatred and quarreling. You have to understand the ideology behind each group. So let's start with the Muslim fundamentalists because they are a little easier to understand than the progressive left. Ostensibly, the Islamic Jihad against Jews and against the West is conducted only out of concern for the plight of the Palestinian people. But that's not true. The Islamic nations surrounding Israel have no regard for the Palestinian people. If they did, they would try to help them, take them in, not weaponize them. Muslims don't care about Palestinians. They care about honor, shame, and reputation. They want to defend the honor of Islam, Arab honor, which they considered shamed at the loss of land once owned and controlled by the Ottoman Caliphate, that is the Ottoman Empire. The issue is not the plight of the Palestinians in Gaza. It's about a jihad against Jews and against the West. This is a battle that goes back to the era of World War II, when the Arabs of the Middle East had become part of the Axis powers allied under Adolf Hitler towards the extinction and elimination of the Jews. It's a battle that goes back to the era of the Crusades even, so it's not a new battle. Ever since Osama bin Laden's terrorist organization Al-Qaeda hijacked American airplanes and crashed them into the World Trade Center and the Pentagon, we have been repeatedly reminded by our media, government, and educational institutions that Islam is a religion of peace. But it's not. It's absolutely not. Anyone who says that it is a religion of peace is either lying or doesn't know anything about Islam. Living at peace and in peaceful coexistence with people of different religions and cultures is antithetical to the objectives of Islam. Anyone who bothers to actually listen to what Muslims say would know this. Now, of course, there are liberal versions of Islam, just like there are liberal versions of Christianity and liberal versions of Judaism. Just like the liberal versions of Christianity and liberal versions of Judaism that don't actually believe their own religion, you'll find liberal versions of Islam who really do want to just get along with everybody. But anyone who bothers to actually listen to what fundamentalist Muslims say, that is, Muslims who actually are following the tenets of Islam, would know that according to the most popular interpretation of Muslim teaching, Islam will become a religion of peace only when Muslims have defeated all the infidels by either killing them or forcing their conversion. Then there will be a worldwide caliphate under Islam, and then there will be world peace. It's the Muslim version of the Messianic era. In order to get there, Muslims need to wage jihad, holy war, against the Jews first, and then the rest of the nations. 
According to the popular interpretation of one hadith of Muhammad, the massacre of the Jews is necessary as a precursor to the end of days and the day of judgment when Allah intervenes, that is, the apocalypse. Here's that hadith. It says, The day of judgment will not arrive until the Muslims fight the Jews and the Muslims kill the Jews. Even if a Jew hides behind a rock or a tree, the rock or tree will say to him, O Muslim, worshiper of God, there is a Jew behind me. Come and kill him. This particular interpretation of Islam was championed by the Muslim Brotherhood, who brought us characters such as the Mufti of Jerusalem, who personally colluded with Adolf Hitler toward the extermination of the Jews before there was ever a state of Israel, and was actually at one point drawing up plans for concentration camps within the land of Israel. That same Muslim Brotherhood, a religious organization based originally out of Egypt, created a military arm called Hamas. According to their dogmas, the war against the Jewish people is understood as a necessary first step in the war against all infidels, particularly the West. The great Satan, hence the popular Middle East adage, death to America. So it's not difficult to understand the Muslim point of view. Like us, they have an apocalyptic worldview, an apocalyptic and messianic worldview. So we get it. We can understand it. It's lost on the secular world, but it's pretty easy for us to understand because they are looking forward to a future utopian age of world peace, just like we are. But they got it all wrong because they built that eschatology on a twisted mutation of replacement theology, taking biblical ideas like the land of Israel, the coming day of the Lord, the day of judgment in the messianic era, and turning them into something else, something satanic. And that's why Islam calls for jihad against Israel and the West. That's the well from which Islam has been drinking. But that's not why students on Harvard's campus are chanting with reference to Hitler's final solution. There is no other solution. Intifada revolution. Intifada, intifada. Globalize the intifada. How did we get to this point? where young Americans openly glorify Hitler's attempt to eradicate Jews from the world, praise communist revolutionary heroes of the past, and are now fawning over Osama bin Laden just 22 years after 9-11. We have to ask, from what well have they been drinking? Maybe you didn't hear about this, but a few days ago, a new fad went viral on TikTok. In the space of 24 hours, several dozen TikTokers seemingly randomly, posted short videos urging others to read Osama bin Laden's Letter to America, in which the terrorist mastermind explained why he carried out the September 11 attacks. The TikTok videos featured young, trendy-looking Americans following a series of identical talking points stating that they had just read Letter to America and realized that Osama bin Laden was right all along. Within hours, the text of Letter to America went viral as thousands and thousands of TikTok users searched for it on the internet and downloaded it. What is Osama bin Laden's Letter to America? It's a piece of jihadist radical Muslim propaganda that attempts to justify 9-11 
and Islam's war with the West and hatred for America on the basis of America's Middle East policy, specifically its support for the State of Israel. Earlier this week, before this had even happened, it occurred to me that the popular Chinese-controlled social media app TikTok is aptly named, probably intentionally named, after the ticking of a clock that counts the seconds until apocalyptic midnight, like tick-tock, tick-tock. It's an incredibly powerful tool of manipulation, which has captured a generation that relies on it to inform their opinions, define their morality, rally their causes, and shape their beliefs. As the doomsday clock approaches the stroke of midnight, we can hear the last seconds ticking off. The protesters chanting, There is only one solution, Intifada revolution, are inspired in part by the steady chatter of inane propaganda and misinformation they consume on the platform. That's for sure. Every human being intuitively longs to be part of something transcendent, something greater than the empty self. And in the absence of faith, social justice causes provide people with a sense of meaning, purpose, and connection that their souls crave. It is the same human psychology, by the way, that explains football fans. The creator of TikTok realized this and figured out how to weaponize it. But the rot goes much deeper than just social media. To understand the social justice movement of the progressive left, we have to look to another well from which they've been drinking. You have to understand the worldview that shapes their moral convictions and what they mean by justice when they say social justice. It's a worldview derived, actually, directly, from Marxism. Originally engineered to create class warfare by dividing the world into two groups, the oppressor and the oppressed. In Marxist ideology, the oppressor is wrong, the oppressed are right. That seems intuitively correct. It sounds similar to biblical truth, which always adjures us, show compassion for the downtrodden, the disenfranchised, the stranger, the poor, the widow, and the orphan. It sounds similar, but that's actually not the ideology. It sounds like the empathy taught by our master, love your neighbor as yourself. But love is actually not the ideology. Instead, it's an ideology that erases distinction because distinction creates these two classes of oppressor and oppressed. It seeks to erase moral absolutes because objective standards of right and wrong do not correlate with an ideology that weighs right and wrong solely on the basis of materialism and power, which is what we're using as our measure of good and evil. The materially successful are always wrong and evil and need to be toppled from power. The poor and materially unsuccessful are always right, regardless of how those scales tipped that direction in the first place. They need to be empowered while the successful need to be disempowered. And that's how it works. 
justice happens when the oppressed revolt against the oppressor and the successful are disempowered. Objective standards of wrong and right become irrelevant in this worldview because every conflict and relationship is viewed through this dualism. That obscene worldview maps very well onto the Israel-Palestine conflict very nicely. And from that perspective, Hamas invokes a warm, fuzzy nostalgia for communist revolutionaries of the past. That worldview crept in through academic institutions, elitist endowments, and social movements until it eventually permeated our culture under the seemingly innocuous, arcane, academic political mumbo-jumbo of inclusion, equity, diversity, reparations, empowerment, white privilege, critical race theory, decolonization, and so forth. On one level, all of that seems right and seems intuitively right. Like, who's... Who's for bigotry? Who's for racism? Who doesn't, who isn't for diversity and multiculturalism? But when you press in a little closer and see what we're really talking about, that's not what we're talking about. We're talking about an ideology of revolution based on a hatred of traditional morality. It's, it's been baked into every university, every school, every curriculum, every textbook, every administrative organization at every level of government until it fomented into a whole new ethical system, which uses intimidation, censorship, and intolerance to champion ever more remote and fringe pockets of the so-called oppressed against ever widening spheres of the so-called oppressors. Hence the war against Western culture and Judeo-Christian values. The war against the West is fundamental to the ideology. It's actually the reason the ideology exists in the first place. The war against Judeo-Christian values, the Bible, and God himself, is part of the ideology because the Bible's values of justice, fairness, and spiritual transcendence are at complete odds with this system of justice and this new morality of right and wrong, which is based completely on materialism. It's no coincidence that every regime to embrace Marxism has also made atheism into a state religion. The result is that for years now, for decades, in every university and school, in mainstream media, in Hollywood, in the workplace, online, to stand up against those voices has been expensive. People get canceled. They lose their jobs. They find themselves shunned as racists, bigots, homophobes, or worse yet, Bible believers. On social media, they lose their followers, and they find themselves banned by the platforms. It spawned a generation of moral cowardice where no one dares say the obvious thing. Our experts and leaders and opinion makers occupy their positions of authority only because they are moral cowards. Careful not to step outside the lines, not to color outside the lines. And the rest of the culture follows blindly along after them. Conservatives have also learned this art form. They've learned this art form, and during recent years, they've learned to wield the same weapons until they now use them with complete belligerence. So whether on the left or the right, dissent from majority voice is no longer tolerated. That ideology, combined with the don't confuse me with the facts belligerence of cancel culture, fueled by 
the agitation of social media platforms, which are in turn demonstrably manipulated by Russian and Chinese propaganda interests, explains how we got to this point. So how do we fix it? Well, I, I actually don't believe that we can. We've only just begun to recognize the problem. But to me, this seems like a situation where the patient goes to the doctor because he's come down with some alarming symptoms and the doctor examines him and says, I'm sorry, I wish I could help, but it's already spread through your whole body. I don't believe the world is ever going to go back to normal, not this time. Or to put it another way, the world has finally gotten back to normal. Jewish people in America enjoyed a brief respite from anti-Semitism, but that respite appears to be at an end. But it's not all doom and gloom. Hashem has not lost control at any point. And if we look into the Torah, we see that this is heading someplace. The time is coming in the future when Avimelech, king of the Palestinians, will come out to seek the promised son, the seed of Abraham, and to make peace with him. Yitzhak, Isaac, is surprised. He asks him, Why have you come to me? You hate me. You sent me away. The Philistines reply, We saw very clearly that Hashem is with you. So we said, Let there be an oath, a covenant of peace between us, that we will not harm you, and you will not harm us. You are blessed by Hashem. That very day, Yitzhak's servants came and told him about the well they had dug. We have found water. We struck water, they said. So he called it Shiva, Oath, or Seven. And for this reason, the name of the city is Be'er Sheva, Well of Seven, Well of an Oath. Genesis 26, 32-33 it's not our job to fight the social justice warriors. It's our job to introduce them to the kingdom, to show them a different path, to lead them to a different well from which they can drink, to show them a different kind of justice, a real social justice, where King Messiah will decide between the nations and settle disputes. King Messiah will judge between the nations and he will decide with fairness for the poor and for the meek. It's not our job to fight the communists, except according to the same mode that we have always fought the communists, and that is smuggling Bibles into that godless world of atheism. Remember that every human being, including every Antifa socialist, is actually a human soul thirsty for justice, thirsty for the word of God, but drinking from the wrong well, drinking from the well of quarrel, drinking from the well of hatred. Likewise, we need to recognize that every Muslim jihadist committed to our genocide is actually a human soul, a neshama from Hashem that intuitively thirsts for justice, is thirsting for the future day of the Lord and the universal caliphate of Messiah, but some, at some point has gone astray and has been slaking his thirst from the well of strife and the well of hatred. In the Gospels, our master asked the Shomroni woman, the Samaritan woman, for water from the well. She was surprised that he would even speak with her, that he had not canceled her, since she was a woman, an adulteress, and a Samaritan. All good reasons to have nothing to do with her, since Samaritans hated the Jews, and the Jews hated the Samaritans. But he said to her, 
If you knew who was talking to you, you would have asked me for a drink. He offered her water from a different well, a Jewish well, as he said to her. Salvation is from the Jews. The name Yehudit of Be'eri, which we saw in our Parsha, the name of the hostage found in Gaza, can be understood along these lines. Yehudit means Jewish, as in salvation is from the Jews. Be'eri means my well. Yeshua offers the world water from the Jewish well when he says to the Samaritan woman, Everyone who drinks this water will get thirsty again, but whoever drinks the water I will give him will never be thirsty again. On the contrary, the water I give him will become a spring of water inside him, welling up into eternal life. John 4, 13-14 There is only one solution for the Middle East, for Israel, for Gaza, for the Muslim world, for the Western world. There is only one solution for social inequity. There is only one solution for anti-Semitism, and it's not Hitler's so-called final solution. It's the light and love and good news of the Messiah, the bright and clear justice of the Messianic era, that hope and truth that is coming to us and to the whole world that is contained in this Torah, in these scriptures, and in the coming of the Messiah who comes quickly, soon, and in our lifetimes. Take on my yoke And learn from it And find rest for your soul